because that that's not what a mentor is supposed to do. They're supposed to guide you along and you don't need to continue in their path for them to be proud of you. And in fact, I think that most of them would say that that would not at all be what their goal is. Their goal is to help you find your best self, whether that best version of you uh, resembles them in terms of what your professional work is or it doesn't. And that's something that I wish, I really wish I had known many years before. Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So before we get into today's guest, I want to tell you a little bit about my new show. It's called Notes from the Field, and it's a show about travel. If you've listened to the last couple episodes of Cognitive Evolution, well, you probably would have, you probably will have heard me mention it. And it's I've given a couple different explanations for why I created that show. Um, but if you haven't listened to it yet, you might be wondering, well, why should I go listen to you regale us with your with your stories of, of travel? That's sort of like, why would I be interested in that? And there was definitely something that I was trying to get to in my own uh, in my own writing of those essays and then doing it as a podcast, which is that one of my favorite listening experiences, one of my favorite connections that I've had with an author is by someone I really like uh, whose name is, is Bill Bryson. And if you're not familiar with him, he's written a lot of great books, including a science history called A Short History, a Short History of Nearly Everything and some great travel books on the US and Britain and Australia and Europe. And there was a period in my life when I was living in Boston. I'd take the tea every day to and from work. It was about a 45 minute commute. And if you've ever been to Boston uh, during most of the year, you know that for about nine months, it is dreary and wet and cold and just miserable as a slog. And so my escape during that 45 minute miserable slog of a commute was that I would listen to Bill Bryson's audiobooks on his different mostly his travel works. Um, I listen to all of them at, at, at a given point or another, but mostly his travel works. And that was such a, an, it was the, really it was the best part of my day. Uh, I wasn't particularly enjoying work at the time. You might, you might tell from that. But the point is that it was my escape during that time when even if it was miserably cold outside and you know I had to sit on the, the trainer and everything, it took me to a different place and I was sitting there listening to Bill you know tell me the stories of the things that he saw and I could in the way that he was doing it see them for myself and so really I was inspired by those experiences with with those were audio books and so in a lot of ways that's that's similar to what I was trying to get at in season one of this podcast and uh, if you've read Bill Bryson perhaps you're a fan Certainly, I, I would not put myself in that, in that league uh, because he's such a phenomenal writer, but there's definitely a lot of inspiration that I have taken there, and I hope that I can put my own spin on that sort of thing, the, the, the kind of take-you-someplace uh, travel writing that he does. And, you know, I think that during my commute, that time in Boston, I really needed that I imagine there's a lot of people out there wherever they're stuck at 
and maybe they wouldn't describe it as misery or a slog, but they could probably use a little mental getaway like that. And if that can come through in, in the podcast, uh, in notes to the field, then that would really fulfill my goal for that. Anyway, you can find that uh, anywhere you're listening to this podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts in general. So uh, that brings me to my guest today. This is someone I was super excited to talk to. Uh, I saw she had a new book coming out, and so I used that as an excuse to hit her up and uh, get on her list for the media frenzy during her, her, her pre-book tour, essentially. And, but we talked about a lot more than the book because she has such a fascinating background. She started off doing her PhD at Penn um, in, in uh, language acquisition, developmental psychology and language acquisition. And uh, then, for reasons that we get into, with literally a month left in the program, she drops out. And what does she do? She becomes a professional poker player. And so we get pretty deep into that story. Uh, Annie describes it as essentially a session of therapy. And uh, we cover a lot of really cool stuff. But it's really interesting to see how so many disparate dots are connected with Annie's story here. Because in this podcast, a lot of what we cover is usually pretty linear stories of like, well, you have this person who's now a famous academic. Well, how did they get there? Well, you undergrad, grad school, postdoc, you know, junior faculty. It's really cool to see someone who started off on what is essentially that track and then did something totally different with it. And uh, her first sort of broad psychology book was Thinking in Bets. And that was a really excellent addition to the psychology canon. And she decided uh, to come back for a second round and uh, wrote How to Decide, which comes out today, October 12th. So if you haven't picked up a copy of that, yep, go check out your local bookstore and see if you can grab one. Anyway, I know that you'll enjoy this conversation and uh, there's, there's a lot to un- that we unpack in it. So without any further ado, here is Annie Duke. So I guess the first observation that I want to start with is that uh, you're a poker player and an author. Your brother is a poker player. And your sister, if I'm not mistaken, is a poet and author. And so I'm not really sure if that's evidence of the greatest family of all time or of a really problematic household. Um, (laughs) I think probably, uh, you know, a little bit of both. uh, But I'd like to hear, I guess, a little bit um, about your, your family background what it was like growing up. I know your parents were, were academics uh, and they, they met playing cards, if I'm not mistaken. Oh my yeah, gosh, you, yeah. You just say a little bit uh, about about that, uh, you know. Sure. <laughs> oh my gosh. So so the answer is, I, I'm pretty sure the latter, <laughs> just like a really problematic household. Um, yeah, so, well, first of all, my parents, so uh, my dad went to Harvard Law And then after the first year, he decided that he really didn't want to be a lawyer. He wanted to uh, be a teacher, which my Jewish grandmother, I'm I'm surprised she lived through it. Um, So he he withdrew from Harvard Law and and enrolled in the master's program 
in English. Oh, so, but, but wait, wait, so, okay, so there's a precedent for uh, withdrawing from one's academic program now, is there? I, I guess actually I've never connected that together. That's very interesting. That's funny. All right. That's literally the first there. time that I put that together. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So he, 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 as one does, he would, withdrew from Harvard Law to go get a master's in English. And, um, and my mother was there at the same time. She was getting a master's in history. And um, so they, they actually met because my dad was playing bridge and my, they were, uh, on the same, in the same building. And my mom was walking by the door and they needed a fourth and he ran out and said, do you happen to play bridge by any chance? So that's, no. that's how they met. Really? Yeah. For real. Wow. Um, and so she so was their fourth. Yeah. So she was, and, and I guess it went well, that game went well. He was impressed with whatever he saw. They, they got married. <laughs> yeah. History skips yeah. over the the interim, but uh, that that's that's good. That's great. Yeah. So, but, but one thing I want to just point out it's it's an interesting collision of two families because so my mother's family, uh, super accomplished in like the really traditional ways. I mean, her her mother had graduated from the University of Michigan, um, you know, then became sort of at that time what you would do, which is a housewife. But her father uh, was a lawyer. And um, he is actually quite a well-known one. So there's a, an argument in, um, uh, there's, there's a very famous argument called the eggshell argument. So he was a personal injury lawyer. And among other things, he represented the class action in uh, Canada for thalidomide babies. I don't know if you remember, there was a, there was a drug that was supposed to prevent miscarriage and it actually ended up causing deformities in the children. And there was there was a very large class action case in America, but there was a separate one in Canada, which he represented. But the eggshell argument uh, is basically, prior to him making that argument, people would generally give less damages to somebody who themselves was already kind of damaged. So the idea would be you, um, l let's say that you're somebody who already has like a broken leg and you, you get into a car accident or let's say you're somebody who, who for some reason was paralyzed and if uh, you get into a car accident, you would get fewer damages because you yourself uh, were already in an, a fragile state. And so that may be why you, you then got damaged. So his argument, basically what he said is that you have a truck that's driving along and it's got cinder blocks in the back versus a truck that's driving along and it's got eggs in the back. And if the truck with the eggs gets hit, they deserve no less than the damages for their cargo, even though the eggs are fragile. So anyway, apparently this is quite a famous argument. So anyway, that was kind of on my mom's side. Um, you know, you have this, I have this sort of well-known lawyer for a grandfather who, a grandfather who I only saw four times in my life, by the way, that's a whole other situation. But on my dad's side, his father did not finish sixth grade. So oh, yeah. I, I find that super interesting, like this collision of this very highly educated family coming together with a family where uh, his parents really had no education at all. Um, they were uh, both first-generation um, Americans. And my grandfather on my father's side was orphaned in sixth grade, which is what caused this to happen. He was an orphan. 
So um, they somehow both end up at Harvard, which I think is kind of like, whoa, America, cool. Um, they end up at Harvard and then my then they, they end up going to, uh, my dad uh, goes off to become a teacher at a boarding school. My mom taught for a little while at the, the local high school. And then when she had my brother, she then quit. But, um, you know, so when, when I think about sort of what shaped us as a family, uh, it's like, first of all, it, there was like, both of my parents were really educated. My mother uh, was incredibly articulate. Um, my dad was the debate coach for the high school team. I uh, was really, really interested in language and grammar. And he's a writer himself. He's written like 50 books, 50 plus books. And so the kind of conversations we're having at the dinner table were very much about like debate. And, you know, it was never sort of that, that general kind of, hey, how was your day? It was always like you're, you were talking about some sort of topic and then taking different sides and kind of arguing the different sides. So that was kind of that piece. And then the other thing is because there was cards in their background, most of the social time that the family spent together was actually playing cards. Now, I just want to say, like, that was a really good environment for creating the children that came out of that family. It was also an incredibly dysfunctional home. So um, the, a lot of what was being communicated in that household was like, you are the product of your work. Like that is, that's what you are, um, as opposed to like, you're you like whoever you are is what you are and that's your you know you're loved for that reason and it's not um i want to say like particularly in the case of my father it's not that my father doesn't deeply love us he absolutely does it's just he himself is a workaholic he himself has produced this huge amount of you know just this huge over i mean he's written over 50 books you know like his work is him it is his life um, so that I think was very strongly communicated to us, like not in an intentional way. It's just that that was kind of the ethos of the family, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, there's a number of really deep things there. I mean, certainly, um, I think that there's a lot of really interesting people like yourself who are the product of this tension between two different kinds of backgrounds. Like you said, collision of two different families. And as opposed to just having all of them be from the sort of straight and narrow academic yeah. path, I think that that creates people who uh, are intellectually engaged, but also engaged with the world. And I think, um, uh, you know, that's probably something that's reflected in your uh, path. So I think that's really cool to see. And, yeah, I mean, I yeah. think that that was true. And then, then also culturally within the family, there was a big division because my mother very early on in my life became very severely alcoholic. And my father was a teetotaler. So there was this really kind of interesting contrast between kind of what was happening there. And so you had my father who was just this like incredibly productive human being. And then my mother who became very unproductive because she was, she, she, she wasn't like a, a you know, a after five o'clock alcoholic. I mean, she was really very seriously alcoholic. She didn't stop drinking until I was uh, 17 or 18, I think 18, 17, 18. Um, so for most of my childhood, she was, she was not really functioning well. And what the other thing that I think was really interesting about that was that my father really loved my mother to, to sort of despite all of this. 
And, but, but the things that he would talk about her were the things that were preserved. Like your mother is so smart, you know, for example. So, I mean, because she wasn't, you know, our house was not clean and she was not awake in the mornings. And, uh, you know, she wasn't really participating in kind of the social glue of the family. Like when we were playing cards, she wasn't with us. She wasn't coming to like my gymnastics meets and things like that. So she wasn't really doing the things that a mother would generally be doing. But my father just admired her intellect so much. And that was this, this thing that you could see, this expression of this love for her intellect. Um, so that, that was also the other thing. It's like you, we had this contrast going on in the household of like this super, super productive human being and this super, super unproductive human being, which I thought also, I think, is a lot of my origin story as well. This is going very weird and deep, but okay, let's do it. <laughs> awesome. Uh, let's continue on that path, shall we? Um, uh, well, so, okay, so uh, maybe to, uh, uh, you know, there's one thing that I want to include in the uh, in this chapter of, of the story, which is that there's this great quote that I found in an interview with your father, which is, uh, quote, we are the greatest breeders of poker players in the country. <laughs> Yes, that is exactly what which, my father which talk would say. About identifying yourself with your work and yes. your and your the you know products that you've created. Yes. Yeah, um, and, and the thing is, like again, I want to say, like, so my mother, my mother uh, died in 2011, but um, my father, who's still incredibly active, still very productive, he just had two more books come out at 82 years old. Plays tennis four time. times a week, still right. Um, uh, my, my father, uh, the thing about it is, I mean, I, I, I don't want to cast my father in a particular light. Like, I don't want people to think, oh, this was someone who was like demanding and sort of like in the sense of, you know, we hear about, uh, some parents of, of athletes, you know, who are just like, everything is like, you have to drill from morning to night. This was all sort of much more kind of undercurrent in the house. Um, the other thing that I want to say is my father loves us so deeply, like really loves us so deeply. These are not things about pressures that he was imposing on us. These are things about that were being communicated about the way that he views himself. So I just, I, I want to make that clear. It wasn't like there was some sort of regimented, like it, it wasn't like he ever said out loud, like if you don't get an A, I, I won't love you. And in fact, I, I, I'm very positive in retrospect that if I had gotten a C, he still would have loved me. Um, it was just that he got A's. Like, it was like, you could sort of see what you were supposed to be, what the standard was, what was expected. Now, I will say that I'm, I think on my mother's side, that was a little bit more um, explicit. So I, I do remember saying to her at some point, I, it was like in junior high, middle school, something like that. And I just said to her, hey, you know, my friends are all, they all get money for every A that they get. And so I thought maybe I could get some money. Um, and I think I asked her, I said, they got, they got $5. It was a friend of mine, got $5 for every A that they got on their report card. And I thought, hey, good idea. I'll go ask my mom if I can have that. And what she answered, her answer, I think, is so kind of, a, it, it, like, it completely encapsulates what the attitudes and what was going on in that household were. Because what she said to me is, well, what do you think you're supposed to get? You're a letterer. <laughs> which is my maiden name. 
Uh, and I was, you know, and that was it. It was like, so basically, and, and I don't know, I don't think she was communicating this intentionally, but what she was telling me is that, you know, an A is the, an A is the expectation. Anything less than that would be failure. Like you should give me money for anything that's below an A. Why should I give you money for what would be that would be like giving you money because you walked across the room, you know, whatever. Um, you know, and it, uh, Obviously, I think that, that 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 there's different ways that you can react to that, and I and I think that um, the three children ended up reacting to that in, in in different ways. At least as far as as high school. Now, all three of us obviously became very productive, but um, you could see from my sister in high school, who's incredibly intelligent. My sister is so smart, um, and she sort of rebelled in high school. You know, she didn't she she didn't perform at the she did not perform at, at the grade level, you know, her GPA was not reflective of her intelligence. Now, by the time she got to college, she, she like killed it academically and she could have killed it in high school academically, but I think she was reacting in kind of a negative way to that. And I would say that my brother reacted in a, in a very negative way to that as well. Um, and while he find, found his way to something uh, very productive, he was certainly rejecting that kind of idea of like academics and a path through that uh, in order to kind of sort of live to, to those expectations. And, um, you know, his, his GPA in high school also was not reflective of how incredibly intelligent he is. Whereas I would have had an ulcer if I did not get an A. Like I just reacted in a completely different way, which was, I hear the standard, I hear what you say, and I shall accept it. And I, I and I don't, I don't know that there's any other way for you. You either have to like sort of totally reject it, which is I think what my brother and sister did, or you have to totally accept it. And, and I went the acceptance route. I actually think in a lot of ways that the way that my brother and sister sort of did it was probably healthier because they rejected it. And then they sort of came back to this idea of like, where do I want to be productive? How do I want to ex express that? What are the things that are going to fulfill me? Um, so I, I, maybe in, in that way, they, they dealt with it a little bit more in a more reasonable manner, but I don't, I'm not sure. Um, yeah. I don't know. This is all very deep. I, I feel like I'm in therapy. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, uh, I guess, your, your academic pursuits, where you did your undergraduate in English and psychology, and mm -hmm. then you went on to Columbia to... Um, uh, a PhD program. And um, I'm thinking of where we want to start with this, but um, I think I'd like to ask you about Lila Gleitman. Um, <sighs> I believe uh, uh, she was your mentor uh, at uh, Penn, was it? Yeah. Yeah. So I started off undergrad at, at Columbia, double majored in English and psych. Um, just in, in retrospect, by the way, I, I am sad. I, I have some regrets that I wasn't pushed into something that was more on the mathematics side of things. So when I was in high school, I, I had finished calculus too, by the time I, I finished high school and then just never really took math again. Um, but there was a, a really, uh, there was kind of this very strange 
again, like an sort of unspoken, like undercurrent in our household that the like humanities were where the value was and that things like business or that kind of thing, they, they, they just didn't, you know, it was, it was just this idea that, that English and, and language and that kind of thing, like being sort of more on that side of the aisle gave you more value. Um, and that business was more like, I don't, I mean, I don't, it's so hard to say because it was also like sort of unspoken, but it was very clear where we were being pushed to. And I think that, um, you know, my mom, obviously for the reasons that have to do with her, but my, my dad more just because of his own lane. I, I wish that somebody had sat me down and said, you just finished calculus too. Like you should think about that. Like you should be doing something with that. And uh, nobody did. So off I went, you know, cause trying to please my parents and um, did English and psychology, but I happened to land a, a four year research assistant job with a woman named Barbara Landau, who's fabulous. Um, and she uh, had, come from um, Penn and she, she had studied with Lila and Henry Gleitman. So she really encouraged me to go off to Penn for graduate school, which I did. Um, yeah. And I ended up uh, studying with Lila who is the, just the most spectacular human being. I, I love her so much. I still see her all the time. I talk to her all the time. I happen to be, uh, in a seminar with her right before I got up here. <laughs> um, oh, really? And I was listening to her talk in the seminar. Yeah. And she's 90 years old and she would whip you in any kind of intellectual debate. Like she is, she's so wonderful. And she really, in a lot of ways, sort of ended up becoming like very much like a mother figure for me. Um, you know, really kind of nurturing me as a person and also my intellect and my interests and super supportive and just absolutely adore her. So what, so what did that look like when you were just starting off in graduate school? Did you, did you have a clear idea of like what the vision was, what you were doing there, or did you feel like you were, okay, I'm just sort of on this track and, uh, how did how did Lila help sort of steer uh, what, what you were doing there sort of in the, in the early years? So, you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I kind of think about a lot of the decisions that I made in my late teens and twenties. And, you know, for someone who writes books on decision-making, I kind of wish that I had read my books because in a lot of ways, I feel like there were just certain things that I kind of felt like were expected of me. And without much questioning of what those expectations were, I was just kind of like, I guess that that's what I'm going to do then. So, um, you know, it never occurred to me to question whether I should go to college or, you know, take time off or whatever. And the way that I chose what college I went to was that I wanted to be in New York City. And that was basically how I figured out where I was going to go to college. Um, and then in terms of graduate school, it was like Barbara thought I should go and I'd been working with her for four years and I hadn't done all that STEM stuff that maybe would have been really helpful for me to do. And, and I didn't, I wasn't really interested in becoming a lawyer. So it was like, what do you do? Like I have an English degree and a degree in experimental psychology, like, you know, 
and 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 again, I mean, I think that this is a place where uh, this just this is just a weakness on my dad's part of not really sort of sitting down in the way that a parent might and saying, okay, so what would you like for your life? Let's figure out what are the classes that you might take that would get you there. Where do you see yourself after college? Those kinds of things. That those conversations just weren't kind of happening for us. Um, so I feel like I kind of went to Penn because it was like I could get in. It was an interesting topic. It was a really good program, and Barbara thought it would be a good idea for me. Um, so off I went, and you know, because I was because of what I had done with Barbara, where she was specifically looking at language acquisition, that was kind of the path that I ended up on. Uh, and you know, and I started studying language acquisition. Fascinating topic, by the way. Like, not sad that I that I um, studied it, um, but. You know, I, I don't know, I really don't know if I end up there, if I had ever stepped back and said, what do I imagine myself being as an adult? What are the things that, that I would like to do? Um, you know, and, and one of those things would have been being a teacher or a professor. I have no doubt that that would have, I'm, I might have ended up in the same place. But I don't think that there was enough, I, I don't think I was intentional enough. And I also don't think that I had someone sort of exploring in a real way, like what the things were that I was talented at and how you could express those talents in a career. Um, and that may have been part the times, like the people weren't necessarily having those conversations all the time with their children, but I think it was also partly just my family. So anyway, yeah. yeah, so I just, I mean, you know, I ended up, I ended up studying with Lila and then naturally if you're studying with Lila, you're going to study first language acquisition. Like that's what she did. Um, which again, like I love the topic. We, I can talk very deeply about the topic. That's what the seminar was that I just came from was on first language acquisition. So. Um, and then what was that relationship with, with her? Like, um, what did, I mean, so many people love her so dearly. Um, and I've talked to several people on this show uh, before who are, you know, students of um, Lila Gleitman. Um, oh, really? So, who? Um, let's see. Uh, Linda Smith, uh -huh. uh, I believe, uh, was a student of, of Lila's earlier on. I mean, Lila, a couple years back, won the Rummel Hart Prize, which is the top prize in cognitive science. And I think it was a couple years before that that Linda B. Smith won yeah. uh uh, so you, there's there's a whole there's generations worth of kick-ass cognitive scientists uh, coming from there, and uh, I think that there there might have been uh, one or two other people who uh, escaped me at the moment, but certainly uh, there are a lot of people who were really uh, touched by her in the field. Yeah. So my relationship with her was so much more than just like a mentor. Like we played tennis together all the time. We'd play. She her neighbors had a tennis court and that they let us use and, um, you know, up, you know, we, it was in Pennsylvania. So really up through the early November and then starting again. And, you know, it's been sort of late March rolled around. Um, you know, we would play once or twice a week. I would play doubles with her. Um, we had, we had so much fun together. We actually, uh, Henry, her husband used to tell the story all the time. And she still does. We were eating at a place called Osteria and we were just all having such a great time that uh, they tried to kick us out for being too loud. And we weren't drunk or anything. We just loved each other so much. And Henry was very loud. He had a voice that was, you know, he was an actor and he could project. And, um, 
But I, I mean, I guess the best way to like describe this relationship that I had with her was there, there was a conference up at MIT that um, really Steven Pinker was putting on. And this was gonna be like the first time I was like presenting a paper at like a very serious conference. And it was, you know, Steve was probably gonna, you know, like you know, query me and whatever, like, cause I, cause I was coming out of Lila's lab and those two labs had a lot of interaction with each other. So we were going up and for some reason, I can't remember why, like her car might've been in the shop or something, but we decided we we're gonna drive up in my car, which, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was, I was a graduate student and it was not in the best repair. Now, which first of all, somewhere in Connecticut, and we're on the side of the road. And you can imagine, like, we're trying to get up to Boston to, to go to this conference, and it could have been very tense. And I have to say, you know, and that was back before cell phones. We had to, like, walk and find a, we had to wait for a cop to see us and, like, come up behind us and then help us to wait for a tow. And then we had to get towed to this place and then hope that they could, like, fix the car. And if not, we had to, like, find a motel. It was, like, it was literally, it was such a trek. And I don't think we stopped laughing the whole time. We were just like talking in the car. We just knew a police person was gonna come along. We were telling jokes, we were playing word games. We were like, I think we started playing this great game called like Botticelli, which is so fun. And, um, and it was just like, we were just, there was not one moment of, I can't believe your stupid car or what are we gonna do? Nobody was tense, nobody was anxious. It was just, we're on the side of the road in Connecticut, the middle of the night. I assume someone will rescue us, but how bad could it be? Because we're in a car with each other, and I, you know, the, I, I, this is the, this is this memory that I have of her, and that's the, that's the thing that I, you know, I think about that moment so much as everything that was about her. She was so kind and so generous, and she loved her students so deeply. And, you know, the Gleitmans were very famous because um, they had something called the cheese seminar, which you, I don't know if you've ever heard of from somebody else who worked with her, but uh, it was like every, once a week you'd go to their house and the, the whole thing was they would have this like, um, just a ray, like they loved their cheeses. So it'd be like a ray of cheeses and crackers and whatever. And it was uh, not just people in their lab. They were invite, invite people from outside of the lab as well because it's very interdisciplinary and you know different students would be presenting sometimes professors would be presenting their work and you know it's this weekly seminar and uh you know and then if you didn't have a way home you could sleep there and they just like opened up their home and their hearts to every student you're just part of their family and uh you know, I'm lucky enough. I mean, she's 90. I'm lucky enough to still have this amazing relationship with her. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I, I think about her as, a, you know, I mean, my mother will always be my mother, but I think that she was really, she really just because of naturally, because of who she is, stepped into that role for me. Uh, in it, and it's just, I mean, it's so, it's like hard for me to talk about her without choking up. Like just that she's so kind, you know, she just loves you so much. Like th that is a person who you can just feel how much, how much she loves you. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really beautiful. That's, that's so cool to hear all that. Um, 
All right, so I want to I want to talk about um okay, so if I have the timeline right here, there was you were one month before your thesis defense and then uh you took a leave of absence and then you never came back. Um so let's let's hear what 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 was the dramatic shift there? What changed? Um and then later on we'll do the exercise that you alluded to, which is unpacking the decision there through the lens of your current uh, body of work and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I'd been struggling with um, a stomach disorder, uh, which I now in retrospect, like, so my youngest daughter actually ended up getting sick when she was like uh, nine and through the process of figuring out what was going on with her, I actually figured out what was happening to me in graduate school, but uh, I had this stomach issue. Nobody could quite figure out what it was. Um, I, I was I would just like get uh, really nauseous all of a sudden. I was really I couldn't keep any food down. They they knew that I had something called gastroparesis, which is when your stomach is not emptying properly, and if food is sitting in your stomach, you obviously end up feeling very sick. So they kind of understood that that was happening, but they didn't really know why or how to treat it. And then obviously when you're feeling nauseous and sick all the time, particularly at that time when I was supposed to be going out for all of my job talks and whatnot, that also makes you very anxious because you don't feel well. Um, and it just became clear. I was actually supposed to go and give my job talk at NYU. And the day before that, I just could not stop throwing up. Like it, it just, everything was so bad. And I ended up in the hospital for two weeks um, that I had, you know, I sort of dealt with it a little bit when I was in college, um, off and on, uh, somewhat when I was in graduate school, but very, really badly in the, in the last year. And then it recurred sort of throughout my life. It's, it's come and gone. It's the kind of thing that flares and then it goes away. It flares and then it goes away. Um, so it became clear that I couldn't do my job talks. So uh, I had to cancel all those and the academic calendar is obviously seasonal. So I knew I was going to have to wait until the next year. And I mean, this was really like, it, it was kind of a disaster because uh, I was lucky enough to get some pretty spectacular job talks. And I, you know, I was sort of supposed to go on mix and now you know, not only did I have to cancel all my job talks, but I, you know, I wasn't in any shape to, put the button on my dissertation and to defend the thesis. And, um, and I, I honestly, I was, I was, you know, I'd lost by that. I had lost like 25 pounds because I couldn't keep food down. Um, and I, need, I just need, honestly, I needed time to recuperate. So, I, and this was recuperate when people didn't, I never really got a diagnosis until I was much older. So, um, and that, by the way, just so people know, the diagnosis is dysautonomia, which is uh, uh, actually becoming, that's becoming uh, something that people know about now because it turns out that COVID may cause, may cause dysautonomia. That may be one of the af sort of after effects of it. Um, uh, and, but the only reason why I know I have dysautonomia is because I ended up eventually sort of finding lifestyle ways to get it under control, but then my daughter got sick and then we connected the dots and it turns out that's, that's how I figured out what I have. So anyway, um, so now I just kind of needed to make money. 
And uh, my brother suggested I play poker in order to make money, which was which is a, a good thing to do in that meantime, because I certainly wasn't going to hold a steady job because I didn't know what days I was going to be able to work. Um, and I didn't want to reboot a new career at all. So I started playing poker. Um, I really loved it. And I did go back for a couple months to finish up my research. But in the end, I never really, I never, I just, I never got around to defending the thesis. Um, and I certainly didn't go off and become a professor. And along with that came, and this is, this is where, I, I think this is like the best statement I can give you of the amazing Lila Gleitman. So, I, you know, after I went back and sort of finished the research and then, and then left, when I left, I really, like I left. And the thing was that I was, um, like I was, I, I was very ashamed. Like I, I had spent five years, I felt like they must feel like I really wasted their time. Um, I was very hard on myself for having quit. And the result of my feeling very ashamed is that I really didn't see Lila and Henry again for years. Because I was, I really, I just, I just assumed that they did not, would not want to have a relationship with me, which was incredibly unkind to them. But that was me just sort of being in my own head, having done this five years and then off I go and become a poker player. So many years later, um, I had a shoulder problem. And by this time I, I was living in Philadelphia again, actually, and I just moved back to Philadelphia. And I was in the waiting room of the orthopedist to get my shoulder looked like at, and I look over and there's Lila. And I have not spoken to Lila in two decades. So I just went over and I just said like, oh my God, like I have to go talk to her. And I didn't know, I mean, I thought she might tell me to go screw myself, you know? <laughs> and I sat down next to her and it was like no time had passed and she just lit up and I was so nervous, you know, and she just lit up. And I think we've seen each other at least every two weeks since then. And that's now wow. been eight years. Um, wow. I, her 90th birthday party was at my house. Yeah. Um, and I talked to her about it and she, she, you know, she, as Lila does, she just thought it was so weird that I was so ashamed and that, that I thought that she would be angry. Um, she was, and, and you could tell, like she said, like, you have to understand, Annie, all this time I've been nothing but proud of you. You should be what you need to be. You, you, it doesn't, just because I train you, it doesn't mean that you need to become a professor like I am and, and teach, you know, and study language acquisition like like I do, I just wanted you to be able to express whatever um, your passion was and, and what you wanted to be doing with your life. And I had told this whole story in my head, which I carried around with me for a long time. I mean, it was really, it was a bad story that I was telling in my head. And I sat down next to her in that waiting room and it was, first of all, I mean, I just, I'm so sad for not having had that relationship for the time that I was keeping away from it. And then she told me, actually, like I had this website that had a contact form, but like the contact form wasn't directly coming to me. 
Um, and she said she had tried to contact me on that contact form a few times. And like, I had just never seen the emails because they didn't come directly to me. And I was so sad. I was actually kind of angry that those hadn't been passed on to me. But, you know, in the end, we saw each other and we've had this really amazing relationship um, where we just see each other all the time and we talk on the phone all the time. And I'm so grateful that I connected back with her um, and that I, I, I get to have this last, you know, this last bit with her. I just, I wish I had had the middle part, you know, but it is what it is. God, there's so much beautiful stuff there. Uh, I love uh, I love to hear about all that. Um, that's really nice. Uh, and so I, I want to uh, before we you know talk a little bit about your current book, um, I am kind of interested. So there is uh, you know okay, so you, you finish things uh, and move back to Billings um, from New York, and then you started mm-hmm. playing poker, and then there presumably was a moment where you're like, you know what? this this is what i'm this is going to be my career um what did that sort of change what we're like oh i'm doing this is i'm i'm all in so to speak on this yeah so i'm not sure that there was that moment because um for probably for the about the first five years that i was doing it i did sort of think well maybe i'll go back you know eventually i'll become a professor but the thing was i was really i was very successful at poker out of the gate Um, Now, that doesn't mean that I was playing in the highest limit games. It means that for the games that I was playing in, I was quite successful. And I was certainly able to support myself with it. Um, And the thing was that, like, I was still struggling with this this illness. I didn't, physically, I didn't feel well for a lot of this time. And I think that, uh, you know, I think about that. And poker at the time was not on television. There was no internet poker. There was nothing. This was about as anonymous a thing that you could do. It was very on the fringes of society. People weren't, nobody thought poker players were, were cool. I don't think they thought maybe you had a gambling problem, I guess, maybe. Um, and, you know, I've kind of thought in retrospect about that, that like when you're physically not feeling well, that it's natural to sort of want to retreat from the world, right? To, to just sort of not, you're not really out there wanting to embrace the world in the same way. And I think that poker was this really interesting avenue for me to do that. I was certainly retreating in a lot of ways from society and traditionally what path you might have taken. But also you can retreat into the game itself. It's a very, very complicated, complex game that as you start to sort of peel the layers off of it, it, you just keep finding out that there's a lot more layers underneath that than you previously thought. And you just have that experience over and over again. Like as you start to think you get the game, you kind of realize, oh my God, like this, you, what I don't know about the game starts, it just becomes, ex, you know, to expand. I mean, they say like, what do you know? You know, you, th- there's the things you know, the things you know, you don't know. And then the things you don't know, you don't know. And what's happening is like, you're starting to peer into that. And, and that world of the things that you know, you don't know starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger as you learn more about poker. So it's a really you know, it's, it's this place where it's like a, like an intellectual cavern that you can just go hide in and and sort of be exploring in the cavern separate and apart from, you know, uh, what your relationship kind of to the rest of the world is. And so I I think that it was the, that, that it was very attractive to me for that, those reasons. I think that it was definitely scratching an itch that I had on sort of the more mathematical side for me. Um, 
you know, I was sort of bred for it because all we did was play cards when I was growing up. So it was a good way for me to express uh, sort of that, the, the strategic skills that I had and the tactical skills that I had when it came to card playing. Um, and at some point, what happened was about three years into it, I did really well at the World Series of Poker. And at that point, it was like, I was married at the time and I said, I said to my husband, I think that we should move to Las Vegas, which is where the poker was at the time. Again, you couldn't play on the internet. There was none of that. And I would say that that would be the point at which I really decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do for a living. So um, that was in 1994, I think, 1994. Uh, so it was actually two years, two years in. And we packed up a U-Haul and uh, right before right before we got in the, like, it was like the day before, a couple of days before we got in the U-Haul to move down to Las Vegas was when I found out I was pregnant with my first child. So, um, yeah, so it was like a lot of life change that happened at that point, but we moved into our first house down in Las Vegas and, uh, yeah. And I started playing, that was when I started playing full time. I mean, yeah. I was playing full time before, but now I was declared like, this is my profession. Yeah. Um, wow. And then it, you just, get, you did a lot of winning after that, I think is the, the things went synopsis. well. Yeah. yeah, there was, there was, I'm sure there were some losses here or there, but there was a hell of a lot. Well, of then, yeah. So yeah, I won um, a few things. I won a world series, the poker bracelet. I won the tournament champions. Um, so the, the NBC heads up, uh, national champion. There was a, a while there where I was the winningest woman in the game, not anymore. The prize pools are so much bigger. And also the women who are playing now are so much better than I was. Like the people who are learning now, you know, when they're in their teens or, or early twenties, uh, the, the knowledge that they have access to, like the kind of simulations that they can be running, there's like solvers for hands and things like that. Like the, the just the base of stuff that they can learn and how they can ramp up. It's so ridiculous. When I, when I was playing, the best players were like 35. Like now I think a 35 year old would be a bit of a dinosaur. Um, so, uh, so women came along after me, people like Vanessa Selps, for example, who, uh, you know, on my best day, I've, I don't think I've ever played as well as she has. So um, lots of amazing women that came after me, but there, there was a while like in the late nineties, early two thousands where I was the winningest woman. Uh, yeah, I think your accomplishments definitely speak for themselves. I know we've been talking about a lot of uh, other stuff and uh, difficulties, that it, but I think it's clear to anyone who's ever taken a second to <laughs> look into you that, uh, you know, it's a lot of incredible stuff. But so I want to I want to talk a little bit about your books. Um, uh, I guess uh, I'm tempted to talk about Thinking in Bets because Thinking in Bets is a fantastic addition to the canon of, you know, general audience psychology books. Oh, thank uh, you. Entrance, uh, it, it, it truly is. I think it, it's a really unique and um, uh, a really unique contribution that captures a lot of the central things that people have cared about in psychology, you know, in the last, uh, you know, however long. Uh, so I think that's that's a great book. And I guess, so maybe, uh, uh, but I also want to talk about your new ones. That's, uh, that's well, it's fine. Just so you know, I have, I, 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 I don't have a hard stop in seven minutes. I've got a hard stop okay. in 22 minutes. Awesome. Just so you know, so um, we have time. Perfect. Great. Um, 
Then yeah, so let me let me talk about thinking Beth briefly. Then what's um that was if I if I'm not mistaken that was your first like okay I'm gonna write a general audience mix mixing psychology my background interest in psychology and my experience as a professional poker player. When did that book start to take shape for you? Um, I know you've done some more pokery um, directed stuff before that. Um, uh, but so when yeah when did you like I mean yeah I'm gonna sit down and write this. What did that process look like? So that, that book actually started in 2002, uh, if, if I think about it. Well, I mean, it really started in graduate school, but um, it started in earnest in 2002 in the sense that uh, a friend of mine, Eric Seidel, got asked by Roger Lowe, um, who at that time uh, had a hedge fund, if, if Eric would come and speak to the options traders about how poker might inform one's thinking about risk. And Eric does not like speaking in front of audiences at all. Um, and he said, you know, and Annie, I, I was actually pregnant with my fourth child by this time, but a Annie um, used to teach at Penn. So you should ask her, she'd probably be good at that. So Roger did ask me and uh, it was interesting, like that, that was the first moment when I started thinking about in this very explicit way the, how the work that I had done in graduate school and how poker really created this very interesting conversation around learning. So remember, I was studying learning in, in graduate school. Now, it, it was first language acquisition, and, and that may seem a little bit far afield, but it actually, it actually contains a lot of the same problems that poker does because these are all mapping problems. How do you sort of see what the feedback is that you're getting from the world, the things that you can actually lay your eyes on or lay your ears on, and map those to sort of underlying concepts and underlying uh, in, in order to create uh, models of the world that will actually predict most of the things that are, you know, as many things as you possibly can that will occur. Um, so language is obviously a mapping problem and poker is a mapping problem. So there's, there's actually a lot of crossover between the two. But broadly, uh, outside of the language acquisition work that I was doing at Penn, you know, I also took a class with John Barron, who's a pioneer in uh, judgment and decision-making and um, cognitive science in general is really kind of thinking about these kinds of problems. And uh, when we think about like uh, the birth of behavioral economics, you know, that's very cross-disciplinary with behavioral psychology, cognitive psychology, so on and so forth. So I, I was already in that space, in, in that kind of burgeoning area when I was in graduate school. So I go, I, you know, I go and now I'm playing poker and I'm, I'm trying to sort of figure out uh, how to how to do this kind of mapping problem in poker, but I would say uh, somewhat implicitly, I was thinking about it in relation directly to poker and, and the problems that I need to solve as a poker player um, in terms of figuring out the game. But when I got asked to give this talk, I was like, oh, well, there's actually, now this is interesting because these things are actually having a very interesting conversation with each other. And that very first talk that I gave was actually not about risk in the sense of like, uh, how do you calculate risk or what would your risk management strategy be? Um, what I actually talked about were, was how do your emotions interfere or, or change the way that you, what your, your risk attitudes are and how can you think about how you could be aware of that? Um, so, uh, so that's kind of what I talked about, which is a much more kind of psychology type approach to this kind of, problem. Like I can, I can give you an equation for managing your risk if you have a lot of knowns, but we're dealing with subjective judgments, lots of unknowns. And 
these types of attitudes can get distorted depending on what your emotional state is. And that's really, that's what I talked about there. And from that, I actually ended up recommending me to some other people. And I sort of, on the side, while I was playing poker, I started to build this business. And for 10 years, I was starting to give talks and um, uh, do some consulting and really in strategic decision-making at kind of the intersection of the conversation between these two disciplines, between cognitive science and teaching poker. And I taught poker through the lens of this conversation as well. And I decided sometime, I think it was about 2008, I think it was 2007, 2008. I said, well, I, I want to write two books. And I had the idea that it would be exactly two books. Uh, one is I want to think about poker, how you can think through poker through, through the lens of a more kind of uh, cognitive psych like psychology approach to it. Um, and I want to write this book, which is thinking about decision-making in general, as it might be informed by, by poker. Like what, what does poker kind of have to teach you about that? So I thought, well, you know, I'm kind of mainly a poker player. Like people don't necessarily know about this other part of my life. Uh, even though by that point I was spending more time on that other part of my life than I was at poker. Um, but I said, I'm going to write the poker book first. So I did. I, it's called Decide to Play Great Poker. Um, if people are interested in learning poker, they can go read that one. Uh, and then I wrote like a, a little follow-up to it. Um, and then in 2012, I was uh, transitioning out of poker uh, do this stuff full time. And I really did want to write this book. And that was when I started sort of, I, I moved back to the East Coast and um, and now I was doing the speaking and consulting uh, full time. Uh, and I started sort of, you know, figuring out like, what would this book look like? What, you know, what is it that I want to really sit down and write? I really should do this. Uh, by 2000 and I would say it was uh, 2014. So I, I transitioned, I was working it, it's sort of in the back of my head okay, I should get to this. Uh, 2014, 2015 was when I really started working on the, um, on the proposal. And then I think I sold the book, I want to say in 2016. I, I sold it to Portfolio and then it took me about a year and a half to write once I got past that point. Um, yeah, so I'm not, that's really where that came from was just thinking about this conversation between the two things. And uh, the real, the conversation, obviously, like the thing that what I tend to write about is uncertainty and, uh, you know, what are you doing when, when it's, it's not, you know, most things that you're deciding about aren't like a coin flip where it's just a pricing question. If I flip a coin and I've examined the coin, I know that it will land heads 50% of the time and land tails 50% of the time. And my decision is really just about, um, are, are, am I making money depending on what the proposition is that we are, we are engaged in? Um, so obviously there's luck involved. I mean, that's a certain type of uncertainty that's involved in that, but I really like to explore uh, what happens when you start to hide information, when I can't see the coin and, and how do we actually make decisions when you can't see the coin. And that's really obviously what poker is and it's what most of life's decisions look like, but we tend to treat life's decisions much more like the coin problem and even more so actually uh, by thinking that we have more control over the flip of the coin than we actually do. So uh, really trying to explore that, that space. 
Yeah. So, um, I guess maybe one question I have is, uh, what do you want to say in uh, this new book that you didn't say in uh, Thinking in Bets? I guess, you know, what, oh. what, did, what did you leave on the table yeah. that you wanted to return to and how to decide and uh, be like, let's get this, let's get this straight. So, okay. So there's, let me give you, it's a list. I'll get, and I'll try to be brief. Okay. Here's the first thing. Um, uh, thing number one is that I think that with Thinking in Bets, I was, it was, I was exploring, I was talking about luck and, and hidden information and thinking in bets, but I was in particular really focusing on the luck element. In other words, the, the fact that uh, the, when um, you have an outcome, it doesn't necessarily, like if you have a bad outcome, it doesn't necessarily mean that the decision is bad. And if you have a good outcome, it doesn't necessarily mean that the decision was good because there's luck that's in the way of the, that relationship. Uh, and so it sort of pulls those two things apart. And so while I did explore hidden information, that that problem, I was more exploring what the relationship between outcomes and decision quality is, right? And how how do we sort of think about that in retrospect? How do we work backwards? Um, and what are the ways that we sort of get in trouble with that? I would say that um, how to decide is a much deeper exploration of the hidden information problem. Uh, how do we resolve this issue, right? That when we think about any type of decision process, it's sitting on top of a foundation, which is your knowledge and your beliefs. And, and that foundation is faulty for a variety of reasons. The, the first is most of, there's a lot of stuff that we think we know that's inaccurate. And the second problem is we just don't know a lot of stuff. So, and those are very big problems that cause a flimsy foundation. So it's first, how do you sort of navigate that in your decision process? Um, so this is a much deeper exploration of that problem of how do you actually improve the quality of the knowledge that you have in terms of informing your decision process? That's thing number one. Thing number two is this is a much more prospective book. So uh, thinking in bets was really thinking in retrospect, when you have an outcome, how do you sort of unwind it and figure out whether a decision was good or bad? That's explored in how to decide, but then it turns very quickly after the first two chapters to how do you make a good decision prospectively? Because that's actually the way to solve the retrospective problem. So this is more, I think, a prospective book. Um, the third thing is that uh, in, in Thinking in Bets, I think that uh, I ended up giving the impression, and this is kind of on me, that you should be pretty slow with all of your decisions. And I, you know, I think about that and I'm like, that was, I can't believe that I gave that impression when I'm a poker player who obviously you have to make tons of fast decisions. So the whole thing is that when you actually embrace uncertainty and you can, you can figure out what a good decision process looks like, you can actually speed up most of your decisions uh, because you can understand when it makes sense to take time and when it makes sense to save time, time being a valuable commodity. So I actually wanted to sort of repair that wrong. And I have a whole chapter in this new book, which is really about how do you figure out when you can go fast and when you can go slow it has uh, mostly to do with what are the consequences of being less accurate. And when the consequences are lower to being less accurate, you can usually save time. But I kind of go through that quite a bit. So that's number three. Number four is, um, again, my bad in the way that I communicated it. Uh, when I was talking about resulting, which is this problem of, you know, we tend to look at the quality of the outcome to derive the quality of the underlying decision. Uh, and those two things are not linked tightly enough together that we should be able to work backwards unless we have a very large data set set. Um, so I talked about resulting is really kind of like the big idea um, in a lot of ways of thinking in bets. 
I had so many people come up and say, oh, I'm so happy that you talked about resulting because now I realize these outcomes I've been blaming myself for weren't my fault. And not that I don't want people to discover that sometimes bad things happen that aren't because of their bad decisions, but I would also like people to understand that uh, sometimes good things happen that aren't because of their good decisions. But I realized that I didn't actually communicate. I don't think that I communicated that clearly enough. So uh, I really try to hit that point home here that this is a two-sided problem. It's not just about your bad outcomes. It's also about your good ones. Uh, and that in order to become a better decision maker, you have to sort of accept that particularly under conditions where there's hidden information that you're not going to get it right most of the time. You're going to try to be approaching some kind of target and that there's a lot of value in getting closer to the target. But the only way that you can get closer to the target, even if mostly you miss it, is by acknowledging when it wasn't just random bad luck that made you miss the target. Right. So. Um, so I try to get into that more deeply and that sort of just brings to this broader point, which is, I feel like thinking in bets was more of a why book and this is much more of a how book. So thinking in bets was like, why should you care about uncertainty? Why, why do you need to be thinking about that so deeply in terms of what the trajectory of your life is or the quality of your decisions? And this book is, uh, okay. If I agree with that, how, what would a good decision process look like and how might I actually do that? How would I start to make really good decisions and understand uh, what the strategies and tactics and tools are for being able to do that? So I, th I think it's a more practical. Um, yeah, I think that sounds that sounds really good. That sounds really interesting. Um, okay, so uh, there's a, a couple points I'd be interested to explore. Maybe I'll just pick one and see how long uh, it takes us to, to get through it because I want to get you out of here in a couple minutes. Um, is one more question okay? Yeah, of course. Um, okay, so here's what I want to push you on is uh, so uh, you have your uh, six steps for making better decisions and uh, step one is essentially identify the reasonable set of possible outcomes um, and then you know you go on and uh, I'll let people find the rest of them in the book. Uh, but, uh, you know, I guess the interesting thing for me with that step is that, you know, the latter steps sort of fall out of probability theory in a way, right? That there's, here's a, like, how to think about, um, you know, events and what you do know, what you can know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, a lot of solid stuff to explore and unpack. But this first step seems like the hardest one. in many It ways. is. Um, because, uh, you know, you can't derive the set of possible outcomes mathematically. And I think one thing that sort of limits humans on this is that we are in many ways insufficiently imaginative, mm -hmm. right? Which is that, you know, to look at grad students, you think that, uh, okay, well, I'll either become a professor in my field or I'll get a job at a place doing a thing. Right. Uh, and those are like the set of possible outcomes. Or there's outcomes. me. Yeah. Or there's me. I'll get a degree and then I'll become a professional poker player. And so when I look at, you know, your uh, path, it's like, okay, what, at what point, maybe, you know, you did have a brother who was into it. Maybe you, your fa family did have a, but like, at what point is uh, drop out of graduate school and become professional poker player supposed to get on the reasonable set of possible outcomes? Yeah. Right? So how do you, how do you think about all that sort of stuff? And, um, 
Yeah. How do how, yeah. How do you manage that problem? Sure. You know, first of all, I just want to thank you because I, I think that that's an incredibly insightful point. And I think that uh, for most people, when they look at that, they think that's the easiest step. Um, and I have not had anybody point out what you just pointed out, which is deeply insightful and true that that's the hardest step. So I just want to say, like, I'm, I'm super appreciative that that you brought this up. So thank you. Um, so the, the point that I'm trying to make is that, look, we, we all have to use our judgment and get somewhere in the sweet spot between an asteroid hitting the earth, which would be unreasonable, right? And uh, mundane, like I'm going to graduate school, I'll become a professor and nothing else. Um, so the reason why I think about this step is, is that the issue is that most people aren't intentionally thinking about it. Most people are, are going along and they're making decisions and they're not actually considering in any kind of deliberative way, well, what are the different ways that, that the world could actually unfold given the decision? What they're instead thinking is in the reverse, I want to reach a goal, so I'll make this decision that will get me to the goal. So they tend to be thinking kind of like one-to-one, -one, like here's my goal, what decision will get me there, as opposed to if I make this particular decision or I choose this particular option, let me think about the different ways it could turn out. So just getting somebody to do that is actually gonna allow them to identify a lot more different possibilities because you're actually asking someone to actually think about it, which, which generally they aren't thinking about. That, that alone is you a lot farther possibilities. And if we were thinking in retrospect, the more that we can be thinking counterfactually, right? Like this thing happened, but there were here are the other ways it could have happened. Um, that's going to get us to into a better place in our decisions. That's to start. Number two is that I really make the point, um, and I hope this hits home in the book, that this is very, very hard to do if you're trapped in the inside view, which is just the world from your own perspective, which is where most of us make our decisions that it's incredibly important to elicit the points of view of other people, to go and look at a reference class, which would be other people like me. What have other people like me who have gone to graduate school ended up going off and doing with their lives? What has happened to them? Where have they ended up? If they're professors, what type of uni universities have they ended up at? What had, did they stay in their field? Did they go into industry? If they went into industry, what happened? And actually start to explore those reference classes. But then also to find other people and say, I'm trying to figure out like what the different, you know, what my different choices are. If I make these choices, how I think it might turn out. Uh, what do you think? And let them give you your perspective so that you actually go into it with the knowledge that your ability to identify the reasonable set of possibilities can be limited by your own experience, your own perspective, and most importantly, what you actually want to be true. So, uh, you know, the idea that um, when I go into graduate school that I might not graduate, well, we don't want that to be true. So when we're thinking about how we can plan for the future, we're gonna tend to leave that off the tree because it's not something that we want for ourselves. But if we actually spend some time exploring that, first of all, we're going to probably be more successful at staying in school if that's the thing that we actually want, because it will help us to identify that this other branch exists and, and what are the things that could occur and be true of the world or be true of me that would send me down that path. And now maybe I could avoid some of those things. But it also uh, may open that up as a possibility to you. Well, maybe I do want to consider dropping out. Maybe this isn't 
for me. Maybe I'm not supposed to stay on this path just because I'm on it and I could, should consider other opportunities. So I'm in no way saying that when you try to enter into that step that you're going to do a great job, but you're going to do something. And most people are doing nothing. And you're probably going to be thinking about it more objectively because you are the more branches that you identify that actually are, you know, reasonable possibilities for the way the future will unfold. Generally, the better your decision is going to be because you've actually thought about it. I love that. I think that's great. Um, yeah. So uh, I uh, uh, want to get you going here, and uh, well, Annie, this has been super fun. It's been a huge pleasure for me. I've really enjoyed this. Well, I, I me too. I do feel like I owe, I should pay you for the therapy though. <laughs> Yeah, we got we got pretty the deep whole pretty thing. quick there, but I appreciate you being open to it because it's so fascinating to contextualize, you know, what happens later on and and that sort of stuff um, based off of yeah. what those, you know, sort of initial conditions are. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think that I think the thing that I would say is that uh, I think you know the lesson, the big lesson that I've taken from my life is that uh, I kind of I'm very good at internalizing other people's expectations. And first of all, that, that, I think that's bad because when I was younger, that was bad because I think that I tended to then just try to live up to those expectations that I kind of internalized without exploring what it was that I wanted personally. But also it made it so that I was, it was very easy for me to assume that somebody was disappointed in me if I hadn't lived up to what I had assumed their expectations were, but those weren't necessarily their expectations. I mean, that's really the big lesson with Lila. The minute I saw her again, it was just love at second sight. And it was clear that those weren't her expectations for me. I had just internalized them. So, you know, I think that uh, the big lesson for me is really great mentors, and you're going to have a lot of them in your life, don't want you to be like them. They want you to be like you. And they want you to live your absolute best life whether that's continuing in the path of academia or going into business or starting your own thing or you know, becoming a backpacker. I don't care what it is that you do. They want you to express your joy. And, and here's the big secret that if you have a good mentor, because that, that's not what a mentor is supposed to do. They're supposed to guide you along and you don't need to continue in their path for them to be proud of you. And in fact, I think that most of them would say that that would not at all be what their goal is. Their goal is to help you find your best self, whether that best version of you uh, resembles them in terms of what your professional work is or doesn't. And that's something that I wish, I really wish I had known many years before. And I think it took that, like ultimately it really took that collision with Lila for me to really learn that lesson. I was starting to learn it along the way. But when, when I had that accidental, you know, waiting room experience with Lila and then renewed that relationship, I had had some hints before then, but that was the moment for me. Um, look back at younger versions of myself and I say, man, you know, I really wish that, I wish, wish I could have tapped myself on the shoulder with that one. So maybe I can tap somebody on the shoulder who listens to this and just say like, live your best life. That's what's going to be make the people who have put the time and energy into you the happiest. Yeah.
Uh, well, that's that's so great, Annie. Thank you so much uh, for sharing that. There's so much powerful stuff that you've, you've shared today, so I'm looking forward to sharing with everyone else. And for everyone who's listening, uh, go to your local bookstore, buy How to Decide, also buy Thinking in Bets, and uh, then you can compare and contrast the prospective and retrospective. So uh, good luck with everything going forward, and uh, I look forward to uh, meeting up again sometime soon, Annie. Thank you. This was really fun. That was my conversation with Annie Duke. I hope you enjoyed it. I I really loved her story about Lila Gleitman especially. And I love how she came back to it at the end and, you know, sort of summed it up as saying, you know, here's what I've learned about mentorship and the role of the mentors in your life guiding you not to become more like them, but more like the version of yourself that you want to be, that you're supposed to be, and that you're, you're most capable of being. And... She really, you know, that was demonstrated in what she was talking about with Lila, who uh, helped her early on, and then she placed her expectations over, uh, you know, over Lila, uh, and then came around later on to figure out, oh, those expectations were totally wrong. And this person just wanted me to do what it is that I should be doing. And Lila was thrilled to find out about that. And I think that's really cool. I think it's really inspiring. I certainly think that that's hard to come by, but it's definitely the kind of thing that uh, each of us should be on the lookout for in our own lives. But yep, so uh, a lot of fun stuff in the Annie Duke conversation there. Definitely go check out her new book, How to Decide. And if you want to stay in touch with me, you can subscribe to my newsletter on my website, codycommerce.com slash newsletter. And uh, you can also subscribe to Cognitive Revolution or Notes from the Field. So thank you for listening. Uh, I will be back here again next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Cognitive Revolution.